Welcome to Invested in Our New Reality, a podcast featuring Ottawa's business leaders and entrepreneurs sharing observations about the challenges and opportunities they faced during these unprecedented times. My name is Siobhan Hassel-McIntosh. I'm an Invest Ottawa board member and the founder of SHM Consulting, a diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. And I'm really glad to have you with us as we explore the path forward for business and industry at this transformative point in history. So let's get started. Normally on this podcast, we chat with incredible entrepreneurs who are developing bold ideas, exciting technologies, and filling gaps in the market. Today, we're talking to someone who has done that, but has now turned to helping others grow their businesses. Nick Quain is Vice President of Venture Development at Invest Ottawa, where he leads all programming and support for startup, early stage, and scaling companies. Previously, Nick was co-founder and CEO at Selwand, a company which pioneered the use of abbreviated dialing codes in North America and was named one of the hottest innovation companies in Canada. And Nick is here today to talk about why he's so committed to supporting Ottawa's entrepreneurial ecosystem as a whole. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Shav. No problem. I'm very excited to chat with you because I know you through partnering and working together at Invest Ottawa. So this is just an opportunity for us to bring all the knowledge and context you hold to the viewers. So I'm going to get right into it. Awesome. Hey, Nick, you're working really closely with founders, startups, and scale-ups every single day. How is our entrepreneurship ecosystem doing 20 months into the global pandemic? And when I say our entrepreneurship ecosystem, I mean the Ottawa area. Right. 20 months, man, time. I have no concept of time now. Sometimes I see things like that. I'm like, 20 months? Is that how long it's been? I don't know whether that's short or long. Um, Yeah, you know, I think there's two parts to it. I think... On one hand, you know, COVID has sped up tech adoption. It's disrupted new industries in a, you know, a much more accelerated way. It's created all of these new opportunities for agile companies like the startups that we support to be able to jump in and take advantage of some of um, the changes that are taking place. And, and we've absolutely seen incredible growth for a lot of our firms and, and seen some amazing pivots and adjustments companies have done to, um, you know, address their business model, you know, and, and for industries that have turned upside down. And, and so on one hand, and I think the part that gets the most uh, media is that tech is doing well. And, and I think that's true in, in a lot of ways. On the other hand, I think, um, you know, founders are of these tech startups are, you know, they're less connected to their startup ecosystem than they've ever been. They're, they're less connected to their teams. They're, they're feeling more alone. They're taking on all of the stress of the change that that's happened in their industry and how it's impacted their company. And then at the same time, a lot of them still dealing just they're humans. They're dealing with the life changes of COVID and, and all, everything that's come with it. And I feel that, you know, with, with less a lot of the founder to founder support that happened out there in the startup ecosystem was in person. And, Mm -hmm. and so I think there's a lot of challenges on the underbelly of the, of the ecosystem, especially for the earlier stage firms that aren't sort of scaling up and riding this sort of capitalization wave. And, and I just feel that, um, you know, it's kind of like when you think of, um, you know, the, the impact of TikTok on teenagers, sometimes Mm -hmm. I look at like social media and what, what, 
founders have to read about of the tech ecosystem. And I think that it's, it's sometimes it's a hard message because in founder to founder, there's a lot of authenticity. There's a lot of sharing of failures. There's a lot of the sort of leaning on each other when, you know, when I'm sitting there watching, you know, Twitter or LinkedIn in the scale up ecosystem, it's all about hyper growth and everything's doing amazing. And, yeah. and I just think that sometimes that's the, the, the wrong message. I, I saw this tweet the other day. Um, it was something to the effect of, you know, 90% of startups fail and 10% of startups have founders with perseverance. Yeah. And it just bugged me. I was just yeah. like, I hated it. I was like, <laughs> you know, some companies should fail. It's okay. You can't pivot forever. Everybody runs out, you know, a lot, most startups run out of money and it's okay to move on. Failing is absolutely acceptable. It's not that you didn't persevere if you failed. It's just, it went to the end of its life and and that happens. It's a very natural part of the ecosystem. And, and, you know, the fact that, you know, you did, you weren't part of that 10%, you know, as, as someone who built a startup that, you know, would probably be considered part of that 10%, mm-hmm. I think I was lucky. And I think a lot of founders that have had success were lucky. Like you sort of, you sure persevered, hang on, hung around long enough to catch the next wave, but I just think it's the wrong message. And then I think, I think that's been tough for a lot of the founders that are out there that um, they're sort of seeing this narrative of all this success that takes over social. And there's a whole underbelly of the majority of founders out there that aren't successful right now. Yeah, that like really hits home when you were talking about. And I think the thing that we've learned throughout the pandemic is that like community over everything, you know, and it's really hard to kind of mimic that energy and the conversations and the learning that happens through those in real life interactions. It's hard to like, you know, mimic those via technology because we're just like at our computers all day already. So, you know, being able or having the capacity or energy to then go you know, and attend events or, you know, hop onto a Slack community of founders. It just like is overwhelming for a lot of people. So I'm like hearing you say that the business side of things for tech founders, not necessarily doing so, so bad, but just like the humanity, the the feelings that go along with being a founder, the feelings of isolation and all of that are really taking its toll on people. No, absolutely. Okay, so you collaborate with partners across the country to create new programs, services, and opportunities for Ottawa founders, startups, and scale-ups. So in the previous question, I asked you, like, how is the entrepreneurship ecosystem doing in Ottawa this deep into the pandemic? Building on that question, how is Ottawa's entrepreneurship ecosystem faring compared to other regions in Canada? So I I think that you know, first off that you touched on collaboration. And I think that's one of the first things to highlight is that the collaboration is higher than ever. You know, we, we do more sharing of best practices and calls with our partners at Mars and Communitech, you know, the, the three sort of largest innovation hubs in Ontario, and even do weekly calls with all of the Ontario regional innovation centers. We did that call this morning. We do it every two weeks and we didn't do some of those things, or at least as often before COVID. So that's been kind of cool. And I, and, and, you know, I think that we'll see that continue in terms of sharing those best practices. Um, so that's been a nice thing from, from, from COVID, but it's also allowed us to, to be better in touch with what's happening out there in the industry. I think that in general, Ottawa is doing really well, relatively speaking. I mean, on one side, you know, Canada's population continues to explode. We're bringing lots of immigrants, like Canada's doing awesome. Um, but we've seen for a lot of 
Canada's largest urban centers an exodus of talent, right? Like people have left big markets. They've, you know, they've been, you know, Toronto, Montreal in particular, some, some massive um, movements of, of talent outside of that city. Some leaving completely going to a place like Halifax or whatever. Um, some just jumping outside of, you know, the main urban area, given they're able to work remote. And, and Ottawa hasn't seen that. Ottawa is kind of like one of those cities that's in between. It's sort of like a big little city or a, a little big city, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, so I think in that context, from a talent perspective, that's been good. The other side of with Ottawa that, you know, has been interesting to see and then allowed us to sort of, you know, roll with COVID in a lot of ways is our startup ecosystem is diversified so much. Like it used to be for those that, you know, have been in Ottawa as long as I have, like going back to the 90s and the 2000s, like Ottawa is a very network-based infrastructure ecosystem. You know, it was Nortel, it was Newbridge, it was Mitel, and, and it was all around building the network of the of the next decade, which, it, you know, it certainly did. Um, but now, you know, when you look at our, our top startups, our top scale-ups, like, these are these are not telecom companies. There's some like we still have you know network based software firms like Solink and Solus that are doing really well. But you know we have a huge e-commerce businesses like Rewind and Noibu and now Trellis coming along. We have logistics companies like GoFor and Trexity. We have cybersecurity firms, security firms, uh, Field Effect, Ahema, like health tech companies with Evidence Partner, uh, AI, soft, like tons of software. So I just feel that our our ecosystem is diversified so much and and you know I think the other thing is is that um, the the percentage of of high tech workers in Ottawa you know any, anyone who's in the Ottawa ecosystem has probably seen this published enough times uh, you know we have the highest density of tech workers in North America um, and and a lot of that has stem from the federal government turning over a lot of its um, what it's done to you know a lot of its IT and and the number of tech workers that have been in and out of government but that's created a really solid foundation for our ecosystem of contractors side hustling you name it that has been really powerful and then you know I guess the last thing that we're seeing in Ottawa but but certainly seeing everywhere with you know a lot of the movement that's been happening is um, you know even when I joined invest Ottawa three or four years ago like the number of female founders that we were working with was really quite small. And then we started to roll out new types of programming that had a higher percentage and things like SheBoot, which you've been involved with, Shav, yeah. which, you know, this amazing program, we bring in 10 founders who go through this sort of investment boot camp, and then have an opportunity to pitch for $200,000 in angel investment. I mean, that angel investment comes from 20 different female angels. Like, 10 years ago, there was probably only one or two female angels, like as part of the entire ecosystem. Yeah. And now we've got 20 of them, like as part of SheBoot, let alone what's kicked off with Backbone Angels with yes. a lot of your, your friends from Shopify. So it's, I, I think there's a lot of really awesome things happening with, uh, with the auto ecosystem. Amazing. And when you were just talking, you, you lightly touched on this, like, you know, idea of remote work, making it not necessary for people to work in major city hubs. So I'd like to talk a little bit, if you're cool with it, about hiring pipelines, because international firms are hiring Canadian talent at record rates with really strong compensation packages attached to those offers. Uh, and like we talked about, relocation is no longer required, you know, given the trend toward virtual or hybrid workplaces. So what are some strategies and tactics founders and their companies, like what are some of those strategies and tactics that they're adopting to address this challenge around, you know, kind of like the fight for talent? We hear about things like the big exit all the time these days. 
Yeah. The great attrition, the great yes. resignation, like yes. all of this. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, first off, I think a lot of th- there had been a talent shortage before COVID. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID happened. There was a lot of sort of, um, you know, quick layoffs and as companies sort of, you know, panicked and, and tried to, you know, get set for sort of a, a long, dark um, time. And and then there was, you know, a feast of hiring that happened back. And I think I think the initial thought for a lot of founders was, wow, this is awesome, right? Like I can hire anyone, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we're by our nature, a little more capable of remote work and collaboration with technology, tech firms. So, um, and there's this huge talent shortage and now we can, you know, we, we can run out there and, and be able to hire anyone. And then, you know, then the realization came, um, you know what? Anyone can hire your people. Yeah. Um, it's like all the borders are gone, all bets are off. And, and guess what? Multinationals are, aware that Canada is well-known for technical talent. The same report that talked about Ottawa as having the highest density of tech workers, well, those multinationals read those reports, and now those folks are fair game. And and with everyone stuck working it from from home, you know, obviously a lot of employees looked around and said, uh, you know, like, if I'm going to be stuck at home, I might as well just work for the highest bidder who will give me the best flexibility. And that has been a real problem. And I think it's created a couple of things. It's created this real vacuum at the earlier stage for technology companies. You know, the multinationals have come in and tried to poach, you know, all sorts of talent. Our scale-ups are now even, you know, the companies that are the best funded are getting even more aggressive because they need the people. So there's this great war for talent happening. And then there's this vacuum of startups that were already, you know, trying to compete with the likes of Shopify and like for everyone they're hiring. And now you have everyone else coming into the ecosystem, hiring people, and it's, it's created a real, real challenge. But I think, you know, the key here is that startups and, and tech companies, smaller companies, you can't compete on a transactional level. You can't compete for that remote only developer who wants to live in Kelowna and work, you know, their own hours. And, and maybe they're awesome, but like that developer could work for any company in the world you know, they just want to put in their time, they're going to do good work. And as an early stage company, you know, you've just got to check out on that type of employee, it's not going to, it's not likely to work that you're going to be able to compete with them. What you have to compete with is culture, with Mm -hmm. connections, with location, and yes, in person. So going hybrid doesn't mean you're taking away people's freedom. Going hybrid means you're bringing people back together in a more, you know, sort of logical way Mm -hmm. to collaborate and, and get the best of what's been lost while still keeping um, some of what what we've learned in in a hybrid world. So, you know, I just read a study that just came out with McKinsey that's saying forty percent of those surveyed in a recent survey are thinking of leaving their job in the next three to six months, yeah. and they think that this is actually going to accelerate. You know, and you've seen a chat people leaving without yeah. without a job, right? Yeah. Hey, I don't even have a plan. I'm just leaving. I just know what I'm doing yeah. isn't working, and and the main thing that they're feeling is they're not feeling valued by their organization or by their manager. And they don't have a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And so I think that going to this, this idea, especially for earlier stage companies, like, like smaller companies to go to absolute, like, you know, remote and just your organization is going to be completely distributed. I just think that's a really tough one. And that the special sauce that these smaller companies are going to have is that sense of belonging, which is bringing people back together. Feeling valued is about seeing people in person. You know, I don't, it's hard for me to set up a follow-up meeting with one of my staff to say, good presentation today. But when I see them in the hall or I walk by them, it's like, hey, great presentation. Or, you know, there's all of these extra little things that you can do that 
that I think that a lot of our companies are focused on and that coming back in person is going to be a real critical component. For sure. I think like the culture, one thing that we know is like people more and more care about what the companies they work for care about too. So companies and organizations, especially, you know, smaller startups, like taking the time to articulate that and making sure that the articulation of what you care about from a culture perspective and a values perspective ties back to the mission. So it feels cohesive. And that idea of like a hybrid workplace really like helps, you know, create the, the fluidity and the option for a person to like work from home when they need to do that, but, you know, be able to come in and have those human connections. And I think creating that freedom of choice for people is going to become more and more important and ensuring that you're actually cultivating a culture, which can, you know, acknowledge and recognize and grow talent who might be in the office or who might stay home and not over indexing for one or the other. I think inclusion and equity work is going to be really interesting to see what happens in this new hybrid global workforce moving forward. Yeah, I think about some of the like the activities that I was involved with either in my company or other companies I work for with the team of cause-based, you know, activities of going to work in a soup kitchen or going to do mm-hmm. some of those things. They were in person, right? Yeah. They were all of us getting together to roll up our sleeves and do something for the community, for each other. It's a hard one to replicate yeah. remote and get that same feel of belonging and togetherness. It'll be an interesting challenge. I look forward to the challenge since I'm in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I'm really looking forward to that. And I mean, you know, on the topic about the future of work, how do you think the workplace of the future is going to look as we try to not just acquire, but also retain top new talent? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I think that different companies will have different cultures, to be sure. You know, I do think you'll see some level of structure returned where a new hybrid would have, you know, occasional all hands, maybe those happen mm-hmm. once a month or or what have you. They don't need to be that often. But I, I do think that you'll see a return to structured weekly in-person meetings that become a key part again of the cadence and, and bring the teams together. I, I really think that Absolutely. that is going to be a bit more of the norm that you're going to see versus the exception where, where that isn't happening. That doesn't mean you're in the office all the time. It could mean that, you know, our team's meeting between 10 and 12 on Tuesdays and Thursdays mm-hmm. and, you know, and then you're free to work there the rest of the day, or if you want to, you know, head out for lunch with your friends and then, you know, or with coworkers and then, and then head home for the afternoon, you could do it. Um, but I do think that you will see that type of structure that that's put back in place and and you can still have people, you know, in that case, you know, you think of this sort of exodus in some ways from, from cities, e- even from people who've, you know, moved an hour and a half out of Toronto or something like that, right. Or two hours out of Toronto and they're, and they're working downtown Toronto or, or out of Ottawa. Like, you know, you have to get pretty far from Ottawa to go two hours away or in Montreal, yeah. basically, but, you know, for two days a week, you know, you, it, it's a lot easier to, um, to do a bit more of a commute versus what you used to do daily. And I think you're going to see a real return to deliberate in-person connections mm-hmm. that, that aren't the be all and end all. It's not like we're all going back nine to five and part of that, that commute again. Um, but I do think you're going to see a big movement in that direction. 
For sure. And and I think, you know, something that people are going to have to, or, you know, startups or scale-ups or multinationals, you know, any workplace is going to have to start to consider is how they use data and insights from their employees to kind of inform the path forward. So one of the things I always say about like this big exit is like, I hope that companies don't just take it at face value, but I hope that companies really seek to understand why are people leaving our organization? How can we learn from that and adapt in order to ensure that we can retain, like kind of like learning the lesson. And then I think also, you know, on the topic of like the future of work, I think it's going to really take like individuating people. So because you're going to have this hybrid model where you might see people every day or, you know, twice a week, and then you might not see people, like you said, until it's like that month or quarterly, you know, very intentionally planned interaction, people and bosses are going to really have to like get to know the people that they are working with past just their jobs, what makes them tick, how do they like to give and receive feedback? How do they like to kind of receive, you know, reward and recognition? I just feel like there's going to be this whole push for leaders to like really individuate the people on their teams. But I mean, this is a whole other podcast that we can definitely talk about this for for hours. Well, I think, yeah. And, you know, one of the things there that, you know, when I read this McKinsey report that was talking about um, number one reason is not feeling valued by your by your manager or by your organization. And I think that that is something that for those firms that are going to be more remote, you need to be a lot more deliberate in the coaching and the managing of teams because it was a lot easier to be an ad hoc coach and manager when you saw someone every day, had multiple interactions, you could provide this sort of you know ad hoc feedback along the way that encompassed a better degree of coaching and a better feeling of being valued by the employee where now you know, some of my direct reports, I, I only see one-to-one for, you know, once a week, maybe, okay. um, or maybe twice. And then as part of a couple of other meetings, and that's so much less interaction than, than I used to have with them. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about the investment landscape. You know, it's like changed dramatically with a venture capital boom, you know, a bunch of big deals, stampede of newly minted Canadian unicorns, what do you think is needed to help founders and our ecosystem like at this juncture? Yeah, I mean, I see this one. It, it, there's some parallels with this with, with actually what we've seen with talent and that there's sort of a vacuum at the bottom end. I mean, you, you've seen with the scale-ups like massive funding of the sort of haves, those companies that have reached scaling status. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not just from the VCs out there, but you've seen everyone sort of move upstream a little bit. Like organizations like IRAP have put a larger focus on supporting scaling companies. Angel networks are now sort of moving upstream and doing larger angel deals. Um, you're seeing banks that, that you know, RBC just launched RBCX. Awesome. It focuses on, on helping scaling companies. But I think in a lot of this, the early stage founders are being lost and there's a real void of, of funding. So every time IRAP takes, you know, 500 K to give to a scale up, well, that could have been 50 K for 10 different startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where they used to be a bit more focused. So I think that's the one, um, you know, on one hand, it's super exciting to see all of these like, you know, mega deals and, mm-hmm. and big financing. And, you know, we just had one of our firms rewind announced like a, a, a massive, you know, deal themselves and it's exciting and, and great for the ecosystem. But the one that sort of keeps me up at night, I think about are the, those early stage. I see a, a real um, dearth of capital for the, for the early stage founders with everyone sort of moving upstream into the more scaling organizations. 
Absolutely. Those, those are great insights. So before we close out our conversation, I have two last questions for you. The first one, so I'm going to ask them one at a time. There has been a lot of upheaval, you know, that founders and entrepreneurs have faced uh, during the course of the pandemic. And we don't want to diminish the challenges, but I'm sure you've also seen some really inspiring stories of resilience and perseverance. And I know those words are loaded, but I would love to hear a couple of those like positive stories that stand out for you. Yeah, I mean, I think one is, uh, you know, I think immediately when I think of COVID and and companies having to pivot, I think of Hoppier. So, mm-hmm. so Cassie and Emil, they, they they ran this company for the longest time. Actually, I think Shopify had been a client for quite some time where they provided, they used to be called Desk Nibbles, and then they mm-hmm. switched over to a name called, uh, changed their name to Hoppier. But they basically provided office snacks. And they built up to a pretty massive, um, um, from a startup perspective, and really moving into scale when COVID hit. And as you can imagine, the market for office snacks in March 2020 um, was drastically different than what it was in February 2020. And they did a really quick and seamless pivot in a lot of ways. They, they, They did some amazing customer discovery. They went back to the fundamentals of interviewing their clients and what they needed and with everyone moving to a virtual market, they moved to this, um, basically this sort of concierge service that allowed um, organizations to provide um, seamless um, transactions to provide sort of drinks or office snacks or hospitality to the participants. You know, you could you could sign in to, to use a local vendor or Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes or whatever, um, but it basically made it really easy for organizations to trigger that type of um, support to participants in, in virtual events. And they've really turned into gangbusters and evolved. Yeah. And what they've done. So they were, they were one, you know, I look at what GoFor has done. GoFor is one of our, our larger scaling firms. And I remember, you know, working with Brad and talking to him a few years back and how tight things were. He's admitted it, how tight things were for them right at some sort of seminal moments. And, and they provide logistics of, um, of delivery for, um, you know, started out in the construction, but really in the construction supply business to construction mm-hmm. sites. And as you can imagine, as COVID hit, their business just absolutely took off in, in terms of uh, the solution they provided. And, you know, I guess the last one I would think of was, was RV Easy, which, which is a, you know, B2C marketplace for renting RVs. And mm-hmm. you can imagine the ups and downs they went through. So COVID hit, no one can move anywhere. Their business basically shuts down, you know, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And, and, you know, there's not a lot to pivot when you've got a market of RVs with no one leaving their home, but then no one's allowed to leave the country. But a couple of months later, people do want to get out into the great outdoors and they have like their biggest market ever. And, and, you know, at this point they've, they've now expanded into the U S market and, uh, and just seeing what, what those founders have had to go through the sort of ups and downs it's been a lot of fun to see them come out on the, uh, on the other side. I love hearing those stories. What excites you most about the future of entrepreneurship in Ottawa? And if you could leave a message with the founders and entrepreneurs who are listening, what would that be? Yeah. So first one, I mean, excites me for Ottawa is, um, you know, we, we live in the best country in the world and, you know, Ottawa is arguably the best city in the best country in the world. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, <laughs> coming from Ottawa, but you know, there's certainly a lot of um, you know independence reports that put Ottawa right up there with every city in the world. And 
location does matter. Where people live matter. Where people want to live matter. And our city is amazing. And it's our, our biggest competitive advantage in terms of what this city has to, to offer. And, and, you know, you can go in, in any direction in this city. Um, and there's lots of opportunities for growth in amazing communities in both Quebec and Ontario. And uh, so I, I think that excites me because this is a city that could handle growing substantially without losing its, its character. And uh, I think people will be naturally attracted to come to Ottawa. And I think along those lines, I think the thing that excites me most when you sort of take a real step back and you look at Canada in general, and, you know, Ottawa obviously is a significant place in the country, is is immigration. The rate at which we are bringing immigrants into this country is amazing. You know, like 400,000 this year, like 1%. That is such a competitive advantage for our country going forward. I mean, Immigrants bring an international and diverse perspective. They st- they actually, from an entrepreneurial perspective, immigrants start more companies. Their ambitions are greater. They're more likely to go international because they've come from international markets. They have connections there. Um, and from just a purely economic perspective, they have bigger families. They bring this yeah. amazing cultural diversity to Canada. It's part of our, you know, that immigration is what Canada has made what Canada is today. So I think those two factors, we live in this amazing city that, that, you know, anyone would want to live in and that with immigration, such a big part of it, um, a big part of what, what's going to make up our country going forward. And, and, you know, certainly you in Toronto can see this with the amazing job of immigration and what it's done for the Toronto marketplace. Um, I, I think those are the two things that, that really stand out to me at a real macro level of, mm-hmm. of why I'm, I'm excited for Ottawa in the future. For your second question, you know, what, what message to leave with founders and entrepreneurs who are listening? I, you know what, I'm going to go back to that first point that, that I made that, you know, we need to get into a place where failure is a badge of honor. You know, the Valley certainly owns that. It's one of its strengths. You know, you, you've been part of three, three startups. You brag about it. Um, I think sometimes in our ecosystem and in the narrative that takes place in the startup ecosystem, people are afraid to fail. And, and the more people understand that failure is okay to take a crack at something and try something, it doesn't mean it's going to be easier. It's actually going to be harder than you think. Yeah. But if you fail, it's not a life failure, right? Like it's, it, it becomes part of who you are. Like I, I still remember being a couple of years into my startup and if it had failed, I still would have come out on the other side of that, like such a better person, such a better business person, such a a more diverse uh, perspective on business that um, it would have served me well, regardless. And I think that that's for the founders out there, that that's what the message I want to get across that this isn't life or death. It's trying and failing is part of life and uh, don't be afraid to give it a shot. Love that message. And for founders, entrepreneurs who might not be familiar with the programming that Invest Ottawa offers, where could they go to to find out some more information? Well, investottawa.ca or Invest Ottawa Venture Path. Just look that up and, and it'll give you an idea of, of where they might fit and what program would be right for them. Amazing. Nick, I want to personally thank you for all the amazing work that you and the team are doing to help, you know, grow the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Ottawa. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and I'm so proud to get the opportunity to learn and work with you. And I'm so, you know, proud of the work Invest Ottawa is doing to support founders, startups and scale-ups. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Chef. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Invested in Our New Reality. We have some great conversations lined up in the coming weeks, which we know will inspire and motivate you. And we hope you'll join us again. For now, I'm Siobhan Hassel-McIntosh. Stay strong, stay healthy, 
and stay safe.